Welcome, everyone, to episode 90 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and in today's episode, we're doing something brand new on this podcast. We're leaving the United States, and we're heading to London to hear about serial killer Dennis Nilsson. This is a wild story, so get ready. Everyone, sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. This story is graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was a Scottish serial killer and necrophile who murdered at least 12 young men and boys between 1978 and 1983. Convicted at the Old Bailey for six counts of murder and two of attempted murder, Nilsson was sentenced to life imprisonment on November 4, 1983, with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. This recommendation was later changed to a whole life sentence in December of 1994. In his later years, Nilsson was imprisoned at HM Prison Full Sutton in the East Riding of Yorkshire. All of Nilsson's murders were committed at the two North London addresses where he lived between 1978 and 1983. His victims would be lured to these addresses through deception and killed by strangulation, sometimes accompanied by drowning. Following each murder, Nilsson would perform a ritual in which he bathed and dressed the victims' bodies, which he retained for extended periods of time before dissecting and disposing of the remains by burning them in a bonfire or flushing them down a toilet. Nilsson became known as the Moosewell Hill Murderer as he committed his later murders in the Moosewell Hill District of North London. He died at York Hospital on May 12, 2018 of a pulmonary embolism which occurred following surgery to repair an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born on November 23, 1945, in Fraserburg, Aberdeenshire, the second of three children born to Elizabeth White and Olaf Magnus Mokensheen, who had adopted the surname Nilsson. Mokensheen was a Norwegian soldier who had traveled to Scotland in 1940 as part of the Free Norwegian Forces following the German occupation of Norway. 
After a brief courtship, he married Elizabeth White in May 1942. The newlyweds then moved into her parents' house. The marriage between Nielsen's parents was difficult. His father did not view married life with any seriousness, being preoccupied with his duties with the Free Norwegian Forces and making little attempt to spend much time with or find a new home for his wife. After the birth of their third child, Nilsson's mother concluded that she had rushed into marriage without thinking. The couple divorced in 1948. All three of the children, Olaf Jr., Dennis, and Sylvia, had been conceived on their father's brief visits to their mother's household. Her parents, Andrew and Lily White, who had never approved of their daughter's choice of husband, were supportive of their daughter following her divorce and considerate of their grandchildren. Dennis was a quiet yet adventurous child. His earliest memories were of family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mother and siblings of his grandparents' pious lifestyle, which he later described as cold and dour, and of being taken on long countryside walks, carried on the shoulders of his maternal grandfather, to whom he was particularly close. Olaf Jr. and Sylvia occasionally accompanied Dennis and his grandfather on these walks. Despite only being five years old, Dennis vividly recalled these walks as being very long along the harbor, across the wide stretch of the beach, up to the sand dunes, which rise 30 feet behind the beach. He later described this stage of his childhood as one of contentment and his grandfather being his great hero and protector, adding that whenever his grandfather, was, who was a fisherman, was at sea, life would be empty until he returned. By 1951, Nilsson's grandfather's health was in decline, but he continued to work. On October 31, 1951, while fishing in the North Sea, he died of a heart attack at the age of 62. His body was brought ashore and returned to the White family home prior to burial. In what Dennis later described as his most vivid childhood recollection, his mother, weeping, asked him whether he wanted to see his grandfather. When he replied that he did, he was taken into the room where his grandfather lay in an open coffin. As Dennis gazed upon the body, his mother told him his grandfather was sleeping, adding that he had, quote, gone to a better place. In the years following the death of his grandfather, Dennis became more quiet and withdrawn, often standing alone at the harbor watching the boats. At home, he seldom participated in family activities and retreated from any attempts by adult family members to demonstrate any affection towards him. Dennis grew to resent what he saw as the unfair amount of attention his mother, grandmother, and later stepfather displayed towards his older brother and younger sister. Dennis envied Olaf Jr.'s popularity. He often talked to or played games with his younger sister, Sylvia, to whom he was closer than any other family member following his grandfather's passing. On one of his solo excursions to the beach in 1954 or 1955, 
Dennis became submerged beneath the water and was almost dragged out to sea. He initially panicked, flailing his arms and shouting as he gasped for air which wasn't there. He recalled believing that his grandfather was about to arrive to pull him out before experiencing a sense of tranquility. His life was saved by another youth who dragged him ashore. Shortly after this incident, Dennis's mother moved out of his grandparents' home and into a flat with her three children. She later married a builder named Andrew Scott, with whom she had four more children in as many years. Although Dennis initially resented his stepfather, whom he viewed as an unfair disciplinarian, he gradually came to grudgingly respect him. The family moved to Stricken in 1955. At the onset of puberty, Dennis discovered that he was gay, which initially confused and shamed him, but he kept his sexuality hidden from his family and his few friends, because many of the boys to whom he was attracted had facial features similar to those of his younger sister, Sylvia. On one occasion, he sexually fondled her, believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation of the care that he felt for her. Dennis made no efforts to seek sexual contact with any of the peers to whom he was sexually attracted, although he later said that he had been fondled by an older youth and did not find the experience unpleasant. On one occasion, he also caressed and fondled the body of his older brother as he slept. As a result of this, Olaf Jr. began to suspect his brother was gay and regularly belittled him in public referring to Dennis as Hen, which is a Scottish dialect for girl. Nielsen initially believed that his fondling of his sister may have been evidence that he was bisexual. As Dennis progressed into adolescence, he found life in Stricken increasingly stifling, with limited entertainment amenities or career opportunities. He respected his parents' effort to provide and care for their children, but began to resent the fact that his family was poorer than most of his peers, with his mother and stepfather making no effort to better their lifestyles. Thus, Dennis seldom invited his friends to the family home. At the age of 14, he joined the Army Cadet Force, viewing the British Army as a potential avenue for escaping the, his rural origins. Dennis's scholastic record was above average. He displayed a flair for history and art, but shunned sports. He finished his schooling in 1961 and briefly worked in a canning factory as he considered which career path he should choose. After three weeks at the factory, Dennis informed his mother that he intended to join the army, where he intended to train as a chef. Dennis passed the entrance examinations and received official notification that he was to enlist for nine years' service in September of 1961, commencing his training with the Army Catering Corps at St. Omer Barracks in Aldershot, Hampshire. Within weeks, Dennis began to excel in his Army duties. He later described his three years of training at Aldershot as the happiest of my life. He relished the travel opportunities affording him in his training, and recalled as a highlight 
his regiment taking part in a ceremonial parade attended by both the Queen and Field Marshal Lord Montgomery of Alamine. While stationed at Aldershot, Dennis's latent feelings began to stir, but he kept his sexual orientation well hidden from his colleagues. Dennis never showered in the company of his fellow soldiers for fear of developing an erection in their presence, instead opting to bathe alone in the bathroom, which also afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. In mid-1964, Dennis passed his initial catering exam and was officially assigned to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers in West Germany, where he served as a private. In this deployment, Dennis began to increase his intake of alcohol. He described himself and his colleagues as, quote, hard-working, boozy lot. His colleagues recalled that he often drank to excess in order to ease his shyness. On one occasion, Dennis and a German youth drank themselves into a stupor. When Dennis awoke, he found himself on the floor of the German youth's flat. No sexual activity had occurred, but this incident fueled Dennis's sexual fantasies, which initially involved his, his sexual partner, invariably a young, slender male, being completely passive. These fan- fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious or dead. On several occasions, Dennis also made tentative efforts to have his own prone body sexually interfered with by one of his colleagues. In these instances, whenever he and his colleagues drank to excess, Dennis would pretend that he was inebriated in the hope that one of his colleagues would make sexual use of his supposedly unconscious body. Following two years of service in Germany, Dennis returned to Aldershot, where he passed his official catering exam before being deployed to serve as a cook for the British Army in Norway. In 1967, he was deployed to the state of Aden, formerly Aden Colony, now part of Yemen, where he again served as a cook at the A.I. Manasora Prison. This posting was more dangerous than his previous postings in West Germany or Norway, and Dennis later recalled his regiment losing several men, often in ambushes en route to the army barracks. Dennis was kidnapped by an Arab taxi driver who beat him unconscious and placed him in the boot of his car. Upon being dragged out of the boot, Dennis grabbed a jack handle and knocked the taxi driver to the ground before beating him into unconsciousness. He then locked the man into the boot of the taxi. Unlike his previous postings, Dennis had his own room while stationed in Aden. This afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. His developed fantasies of sex with an unresistant or deceased partner, unfulfilled, he compensated by imagining sexual encounters with an unconscious body as he masturbated while looking at his own prone nude body in a mirror. On one occasion, Dennis discovered that, by using a freestanding mirror, he could create an effect whereby if positioning the mirror so his head was out of view, he could visualize himself engaged in a sexual act with another man. To Dennis, 
this ruse created the ideal circumstance in which he could visually split his personality. In these masturbatory fantasies, Dennis alternately envisioned himself as being both the domineering and the passive partner. These fantasies gradually evolved to incorporate his own near-death experience with the Arab taxi driver. The dead bodies he had seen in Aden, an imagery within a 19th century oil painting entitled The Raft of the Medusa, which depicts an old man holding the limp nude body of a dead youth as he sits aside the dismembered body of another young male. In Dennis's most vividly recalled fantasy, a slender, attractive young blonde soldier who had been recently killed in battle is dominated by a faceless, dirty, gray-haired old man who washed this body before engaging in intercourse with the spread-eagled corpse. While Dennis completed his deployment in Aden, he returned to the UK and was assigned to serve with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders at Seton Barracks in Plymouth, Devon. Throughout his service with this regiment, he was required to cook for 30 soldiers and two officers on a daily basis. Dennis served at these barracks for one year before being transferred with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders to Cyprus in 1969. Months later, the regiment was transferred to West Berlin, where the same year, Dennis had his first sexual experience with a female, a prostitute whose services he solicited. He bragged of this sexual encounter to his colleagues, but later stated that he found intercourse with a female both overrated and depressing. Following a brief period with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders in Inverness Nielsen, he was selected to cook for the Queen's Royal Guard before, in January 1971, being reassigned to serve as a cook for a different regiment in the Shetland Islands, where he ended his 11-year military career at the rank of Corporal in October 1972. Between October and December 1972, Dennis lived with his family as he considered his next career move. On more than one occasion in the three months Dennis lived in Stricken, his mother voiced her opinion as to her being more concerned with his lack of female companionship than his career path, and of her desire to see him marry and start a family. On one occasion, Dennis joined his older brother, Olaf Jr., his sister-in-law, and another couple to watch a documentary about gay men. All present viewed the topic with derision except Dennis, who ardently spoke in defense of gay rights. A fight ensued, after which Olaf Jr. informed his mother that Dennis was gay. Dennis never spoke to his older brother again and maintained only sporadic written contact with his mother, stepfather, and younger siblings. He decided to join the Metropolitan Police and moved to London in December to begin the training course. In April 1973, Dennis completed his police training and was posted to Wilsden Green, 
still a cadet and junior constable. He performed several arrests, but never had to physically subdue a member of the public. Dennis enjoyed the work, but missed the comradeship of the army. He began to drink alone in the evenings. During the summer and autumn of 1973, Dennis began frequenting gay pubs and engaged in several casual liaisons with men. He viewed these encounters as, quote, soul-destroying liaisons in which he would only lend his partner his body in a vain search for inner peace as he sought a lasting relationship. In August, following a failed relationship, Dennis came to the conclusion that his personal lifestyle was at odds with his job. His birth father died the same month, leaving each of his three children 1,000 pounds, the equivalent of about 9,972 pounds as of 2022. In December, Dennis resigned from the police. Between December 73 and May 1974, he worked as a security guard. The work was intermittent, and he resolved to find more stable, secure employment. He found work as a civil servant in May 1974. He was initially posted to a job center in Denmark Street, where his primary role was to find employment for unskilled laborers. At his workplace, Dennis was known to be a quiet, conscientious employee who was active in the trade union movement. His attendance record was mediocre, although he frequently volunteered to work overtime, leading several colleagues to suspect that he was something of a loner. In 1979, Dennis was appointed to acting executive officer. He was officially promoted to the position of executive officer with additional supervisory responsibilities. In June of 1982, and transferred to another job center in Kentish Town, continuing in this job until his arrest. In November 1975, Dennis encountered a 20-year-old man named David Golachan being threatened outside of a pub by two other men. Dennis intervened in the altercation and took David to his room at 80 Tingenmouth Road in the Cricklewood district of North London. The two men spent the evening drinking and talking. Dennis learned that David had recently moved to London from Western Supermare, Somerset, was gay, unemployed, and residing in a hostel. The following morning, both men agreed to live together in a larger residence, and Dennis, using part of the inheritance bequeathed to him by his father, immediately resolved to find a larger property. Several days later, the pair viewed a vacant ground floor flat at 195 Melrose Avenue, also in Cricklewood, and they decided to move into the property. Prior to moving into Melrose Avenue, Dennis negotiated a deal with the landlord, whereby he and David had exclusive use of the garden at the rear of the property. The Melrose Avenue flat was supposed to be furnished, but upon moving in, the pair found it to be largely empty. 
Over the, over the following months, the couple redecorated and furnished the entire flat. Much of this work was performed by David, as Dennis, having discovered David's lack of employment ambitions, began to view himself as a breadwinner in their relationship. Dennis later recollected that he was sexually attracted to David, but the pair seldom had intercourse. Initially, Dennis experienced domestic contentment with David, but within a year of their moving to Melrose Avenue, the superficial relationship between the two men began to show signs of strain. They slept in separate beds, and both began to bring home casual sexual partners. David later insisted Dennis had never been physically violent toward him, but that he did engage in verbal abuse, and the pair had begun arguing with increasing frequency by early 1976. Dennis later stated that following a heated argument in May of 77, he demanded that David leave the residence. Dater, David later informed investigators that he had chosen to end the relationship. Dennis formed brief relationships with several other young men over the following 18 months. None of these relationships lasted more than a few weeks, and none of the men expressed any intention of living with him on a permanent basis. But by late 1978, he was living a solitary existence. He had experienced at least three failed relationships in the previous 18 months, and he later confessed to having developed an increasing conviction that he was unfit to live with. Throughout 1978, he devoted an ever-increasing amount of his time, effort, to his work, and most evenings he spent consuming spirits and or lager as he listened to music. Between 1978 and 1983, Dennis is also known to have killed a minimum of 12 men and boys, and to have attempted to kill 7 others. He initially confessed in 1983 to having killed about 16 victims. The majority of his victims were homeless or gay men, others were heterosexual people that he typically met in bars on public transport or on one occasion outside of his own home. All of Dennis's murders were committed inside the two North London addresses where he had resided in the years he is known to have killed. His victims were lured to these addresses through guile, typically the offer of alcohol and or shelter. Inside Dennis's homes, the victims were usually given food and alcohol and then strangled typically with a ligature, either to death or until they had become unconscious. If the victim had been strangled into unconsciousness, Dennis then drowned him in a bathtub, his sink, or a bucket of water before observing a ritual in which he bathed, clothed, and retained the bodies inside of his home for several weeks or occasionally months before he dismembered them. Each victim killed between 1978 and 1981 at his Cricklewood residence was disposed of via burning upon a bonfire. Prior to their dissection, Dennis removed their internal organs, which he disposed of either beside a fence, behind his flat, or close to Gladstone Park. 
the victims killed in 1982 and 1983 at his Moosewell Hill residence were retained at his flat, with their flesh and smaller bones flushed down the toilet. Dennis admitted to engaging in masturbation as he viewed the nude bodies of several of his victims, and to have engaged in sexual acts with six of his victims' bodies, but was adamant that he had never penetrated any of his victims. Dennis killed his first victim, 14-year-old Stephen Holmes, on December 30, 1978. Holmes encountered Dennis in the Cricklewood Arms pub, where Holmes had unsuccessfully attempted to purchase alcohol. According to Nelson, he had been drinking heavily alone on the day that he met Holmes before deciding in the evening that he must, at all costs, leave his flat and seek company. Dennis invited Holmes to his house with the promise of the two drinking alcohol and listening to music, believing him to be approximately 17 years old. At Dennis's home, both he and Holmes drank heavily before they fell asleep. The following morning, Dennis awoke to find the sleeping Holmes beside him on his bed. In his subsequent written confessions, he stated that he was, quote, afraid to wake him in case he left me. After caressing the sleeping youth, Dennis decided Holmes was to stay with me over the new year, whether he wanted to or not. Reaching for a necktie, Dennis straddled Holmes as he strangled him into unconsciousness before drowning the teenager in a bucket filled with water. Nelson then washed the body in his bathtub before placing Holmes on his bed and caressing his body. He twice masturbated over the body before awaiting the passing of rigor, rigor mortis to enable him to stow the corpse beneath his floorboards. Holmes's bound corpse remained beneath the floorboards for almost eight months before Dennis built a bonfire in the garden behind his flat and burned the body on August 11, 1979. Reflecting on his killing spree in 1993, Dennis stated that, Having kill, killed Holmes, I caused dreams which caused death. This is my crime, adding that he had started down the avenue of death in possession of a new kind of flatmate. On October 11, 1979, Dennis attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho, whom he had met at a St. Martin's Lane pub and lured to his flat on the promise of sex. Dennis attempted to strangle Ho, who managed to flee from his flat and reported the incident to police. Dennis was questioned in relation to the incident, but Ho decided not to press charges. Two months after the attempted murder of Ho, on December 3, 1979, Dennis encountered a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockaden, who had been on a tour of England visiting relatives. Dennis encountered Kenneth as they both drank in a West End pub. Upon learning the young man was a tourist, Dennis offered to show him several London landmarks, an offer which Kenneth accepted. Dennis then invited the student to his house on the promise of a meal and further drinks. The pair stopped off 
license en route to Nelson's residence and purchase whiskey, rum, and beer, with Kenneth insisting on sharing the bill. Dennis was adamant that he could not recall the precise amount. Precise moment, he strangled Kenneth, but recalled that he strangled the young man with the cord of his headphones as Kenneth listened to music. He also recalled dragging his body across his floor with the wire wrapped around his neck as he strangled him, before pouring himself half a glass of rum and continuing to listen to music on the headphones with which he had just strangled Kenneth. The following day, Dennis purchased a Polaroid camera and photographed Kenneth's body in various suggestive positions. He then laid the corpse spread-eagled above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours before wrapping the body in plastic bags and stowing the corpse beneath the floorboards. On approximately four occasions over the following fortnight, Dennis disinterned Kenneth's body from beneath his floorboards and seated the body upon his armchair alongside him as he himself watched television and drank alcohol. Dennis killed his third victim, 16-year-old Martin Duffy, on May 17, 1980. Duffy was a catering student from Birkenhead, Maryside, who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge on May 13, after being questioned by the British Transport Police for evading his train fare. For four days, Duffy had slept rough near Easton Railway Station before Dennis encountered the youth as he returned from a union conference in Southport. Duffy, Dennis recollected, was both exhausted and hungry and happily accepted Dennis's offer of a meal and a bed for the evening. After the youth had fallen asleep in Dennis's bed, Dennis fashioned a ligature around his neck and then simultaneously sat on his chest and tightened the ligature with great force. Dennis held this grip until Duffy became unconscious. He then dragged him into his kitchen and drowned him in his sink before bathing with the body, which he recollected as, quote, the youngest looking I'd ever seen. Duffy's body was first placed upon a kitchen chair, then upon the bed on which he had been strangled. The body was repeatedly kissed, complimented, and caressed by Dennis, both before and after he had masturbated while sitting upon the stomach of the corpse. For two days, Duffy's body was stowed in a cupboard before Dennis noted signs of bloating. Therefore, he went straight under the floorboards. Following Duffy's murder, Dennis began to kill with increasing frequency. Before the end of 1980, he killed a further five victims and attempted to murder one other. Only one of these victims, whom Dilson murdered, 26-year-old William Sutherland, had ever been identified. Dennis's recollections of the unidentified victims were vague, but he graphically recalled how each victim had been murdered and just how long the body had been retained before dissection. One unidentified victim killed in November had moved his legs in a cycling motion as he was strangled. Dennis is known to have absented himself from work between November 11th and 18th, likely due to this particular murder. 
Another unidentified victim Dennis had unsuccessfully attempted to resuscitate before sinking to his knees and sobbing, then spitting at his own image as he looked at himself in the mirror. On another occasion, he had lain in bed alongside the body of an, of an unidentified victim as he listened to the classical theme Fanfare for the Common Man before bursting into tears. Inevitably, the accumulated bodies beneath Dennis's floorboards attracted insects and created a foul odor, particularly throughout the summer months. On occasions when Dennis disinterred the victims from beneath the floorboards, he noted that the bodies were covered with pupa and infested with maggots. Some victims' head had maggots crawling out of the eye sockets and mouths. He placed deodorants beneath the floorboards and sprayed insecticide about the flat twice daily, but the odor of decay and the presence of flies remained. In late 1980, Dennis removed and dissected the bodies of each victim killed since December 1979 and burned them upon a communal bonfire that he had constructed on waste ground behind his flat. To disguise the smell of the burning flesh of the six dissected bodies, placed upon this pyre, Dennis crowned the bonfire with an old car tire. Three neighborhood children stood to watch this particular bonfire, and Dennis later wrote in his memoirs that he felt that it would have seemed in order if he had these had seen these three children dancing around a mass funeral pyre. When the bonfire had been reduced to ashes and cinders, Dennis used a rake to search the debris for any recognizable bones. Noting a skull was still intact, he smashed it to pieces with his rake. On or about January 4, 1981, Dennis encountered an unidentified man with whom he described for investigators as an 18-year-old blue-eyed young Scott at the Golden Lion Pub in Soho. He was lured to Melrose Avenue upon the promise of partaking in a drinking contest. After Dennis and his victim had consumed several beverages, Dennis strangled him with a tie and subsequently placed the body beneath the floorboards. Dennis is known to have informed his employers that he was ill and un unable to attend work on January 12th in order that he could dissect both the victims and another unidentified victim that he had killed approximately one month earlier. By April, Dennis had killed two further unidentified victims, one of whom he described as an English skinhead whom he had met in Leicester Square. The other he described as Belfast Boy, a man in his early 20s, approximately 5 foot 9 inches in height, whom he had murdered sometime in February. In relation to the first of these three unidentified victims, he later casually reflected, end of the day, end of the drink, end of a person, floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. The following month, Dennis removed the internal organs of several victims stowed beneath his floorboards. He discarded these innards both upon the waste ground behind his flat and in his household trash can. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow, whom 
Dennis discovered slumped against a wall outside his home on September 17, 1981. When Dennis inquired as to Barlow's welfare, he was informed that a medication Barlow was prescribed for his epilepsy had caused his legs to weaken. Dennis suggested that Barlow should be in a hospital and, supporting him, walked him into his residence before phoning for an ambulance. The following day, Barlow was released from the hospital and returned to Dennis's home, apparently to thank him. He was invited in and, after eating a meal, began drinking rum and coke before falling asleep on the sofa. Dennis manually strangled Barlow as he slept, before stowing his body beneath his kitchen sink the following morning. In mid-1981, Dennis's landlord decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asked Dennis to vacate the property. Dennis was initially resistant to, to the proposal, but accepted an offer of £1,000 from the landlord to vacate the residence. He moved into an attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens in the Moosewell Hill District of North London on October 5, 1981. The day before he vacated the property, Dennis burned the dissected bodies of the last five victims that he had killed at this address upon a third and file bonfire, bonfire that he constructed in the garden behind his flat. Again, Dennis ensured the bonfire was crowned with an old car tire to disguise the smell of burning flesh. Dennis had already dissected the bodies of four of these victims in January and August, and needed only to complete the dissection of Barlow for this third bonfire. At 23 Cranley Gardens, Dennis had no access to a garden, and as he resided in an attic flat, he was unable to stow any bodies beneath his floorboards. For almost two months, any acquaintances Dennis encountered and lured to his flat were not assaulted in any manner, although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Nobbs on November 23, 1981, but stopped himself from completing the act. In March 1982, Dennis encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while drinking in a pub near Leicester Square. Howlett was lured to Dennis's flat on the promise of continuing drinking with Dennis. There, both Dennis and Howlett drank as they watched a movie. Before Howlett walked into Dennis's front room and fell asleep on his bed, which was located in the front room at this time. One hour later, Dennis unsuccessfully attempted to rouse Hallett, then sat on the edge of the bed drinking rum as he stared at him before deciding to kill him. Following a ferocious struggle, Dennis strangled Hallett into unconsciousness with an upholstery strap before returning to his living room. Shaking from the stress of the struggle in which he had believed he would be overpowered. On three occasions over the following ten minutes, Dennis unsuccessfully attempted to kill this victim after noting that he had resumed breathing. Before deciding to fill his bathtub with water and drown him, for over a week following Howlett's murder, Dennis's own neck bore the victim's finger impressions. In May 1982, Dennis encountered Carl Stoder, a 21-year-old gay man, as a young man drank at the Black Cap pub in Camden. 
Dennis engaged Stoder in conversation, discovering that he was depressed following a failed relationship. After applying him with alcohol, Dennis invited him to his flat, assuring his guests that he had no intention of sexual activity. At the flat, Stoder consumed further alcohol before falling asleep upon an open sleeping bag. He later awoke to find himself being strangled with Dennis loudly whispering, Stay still. In his subsequent testimony at Dennis's trial, Stoder stated that he initially believed Dennis was trying to free him from the zip of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. He then vaguely recalled hearing water running before realizing he was immersed in the water and that Dennis was attempting to drown him. After briefly succeeding in raising his head above the water, Stoder gasped the words, No more, please, no more, before Dennis again submerged Stoder's head beneath the water. Believing that he had killed him, Dennis seated the youth in his armchair, then noted his mongrel dog, Bleep, licking Stoder's face. Dennis realized that he was still barely alive. He rubbed Stoder's limbs and heart to increase circulation covered the youth's body in blankets and then laid him upon his bed. When Stoder regained consciousness, Dennis embraced him. He then explained to Stoder that he had almost strangled himself on the zip of the sleeping bag and that he had resuscitated him. Over the following two days, Stoder repeatedly lapsed in and out of consciousness. When Stoder had regained enough strength to question Dennis as of his recollections of being strangled and immersed in cold water, Dennis explained that he had become caught in the zip, zipper of the sleeping bag following a nightmare, and that he had placed him in cold water as you were in shock. Dennis then led Stoder to a nearby railway station, where he informed the young man that he hoped that he might meet again before he bade farewell to him. Three months after Dennis's June 1982 promotion to the position of executive officer in his employment, he encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen attempting to hail a taxi in Shaftersbury. Allen accepted Dennis's offer to accompany him to Cranley Gardens for a meal, as had always been the case with several previous victims. Dennis stated that he could not recall the precise moment he had strangled Allen, but recalled approaching him as he sat eating an omelet with the full intention of murdering him. Allen's body was retained in the bathtub for a total of three days before Dennis began the task of dissecting his body upon the kitchen floor. Dennis is again known to have informed his employers he was ill and unable to work on October 9, 1982, likely in order that he could complete the dissection of Allen's body. On January 26, 1983, Dennis killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair was last seen by acquaintances in the company of Dennis, walking in the direction of a tube station. At Dennis's flat, Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in an armchair as Dennis sat listening to the rock opera Tommy. Dennis approached Sinclair, knelt before him, and said to him, Oh Stephen, here I go again before strangling Sinclair with a ligature constructed with a necktie and rope. Noting, 
crepe bandages upon each of Sinclair's wrists. Dennis removed these to discover, discover several deep slash marks from where Sinclair had recently tried to kill himself. Following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Dennis laid Sinclair's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to the body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself lying naked alongside the dead man. Several hours later, he turned Stephen's head toward him before kissing his body on the forehead and saying, Good night, Stephen. Dennis then fell asleep alongside the body, as had been the case with both Howlett and Allen. Sinclair's body was subsequently dissected with various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, or within a drawer located beneath the bathtubs. The bags used to seal Sinclair's remains were sealed with the same crepe bandages Nilsen had found upon Sinclair's wrists. Dennis attempted to, to dispose of the flesh, internal organs, and smaller bones of all three victims killed at Cranley Gardens by flushing their dissected remains down his toilet. In a practice which he had conducted upon several victims killed at Melrose Avenue, he also boiled the heads, hands, and feet to remove the flesh off of these sections of the victims' bodies. On February 4, 1983, Dennis wrote a letter of complaint to estate agents complaining that the drains at Cranley Gardens were blocked and that the situation for both himself and the other tenants at the property was intolerable. The following day, he refused to allow an acquaintance to enter his property, the reason being he had begun to dismember Sinclair's body on the floor of his kitchen. Dennis's murders were first discovered by a dino rod employee, Michael Catran, who responded to the plumbing complaints made by both Dennis and other tenants of Cranley Gardens on February 8th. Opening a drain cover at the side of the house, Catran discovered the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of unknown origin. Catran reported his suspicions to his superior, Gary Wheeler. As Catran had arrived at the property at dusk, he and Wheeler agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage until the following morning. Prior to leaving the property, Dennis and fellow tenant Jim Alcock convened with Catran to discuss the source of the substance. Upon hearing Catran exclaim how similar the substance was in appearance to human flesh, Dennis replied, it looks to me like someone had been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. At 7.30 a.m. the following day, Catran and Wheeler returned to the Cranley Gardens, by which time the drain had been cleared. This aroused the suspicions of both men. Catran discovered some scraps of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from the drain, which linked to the top flat of the house. To both Catrain and Wheeler, the bones looked as if they originated from a human hand. Both men immediately called the police, who upon closer inspection discovered further small bones and scraps of what looked to the naked eye like either human or animal flesh in the same pipe. These remains were taken to the mortuary at Hornsey, where pathologist David Bowen advised police that the remains were human and that one particular piece of flesh he concluded had been from a human neck bore a ligature mark. Upon learning from fellow tenants 
that the top floor flat from where the human remains had been flushed belonged to Dennis. Detective Chief Inspector Peter J. and two colleagues opted to wait outside the house until Dennis returned home from work. When Dennis returned home, DCIJ introduced himself and his colleagues, explaining that they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains from his flat. Dennis asked why the police were interested in his drains, and also whether or not the two officers present with Jay were health inspectors. In response, Jay informed Dennis that the other two were also police officers, and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter further. The three officers followed Dennis into his flat, where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Dennis questioned further as to why the police were interested in his drains, to which he was informed the blockage had been caused by human remains. Dennis feigned shock and bewilderment, stating, Good grief, how awful. In response, Jay replied, Don't mess about, where's the rest of the body? Dennis responded calmly, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe from which DCIJ and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomposition emanated. The officers did not open the cupboard, but asked Dennis whether there were any other body parts to be found, to which Dennis replied, It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here, at the police station. He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder before being taken to Hornsey Police Station. While en route to the police station, Dennis was asked whether the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out of the window of the police car, he replied, 15 or 16, since 1978. That evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers accompanied DCIJ and Bowen to Cranley Gardens, where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsey Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull, almost completely devoid of flesh, a severed head, and a torso with arms attached, but hands missing. Both heads were found to have been subjected to moist heat. In an interview conducted on February 10th, Dennis confessed there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in his living room, with other remains inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom. The dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, usually with a necktie. One victim he could not name, Another he knew only as John the Guardsman, and a third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that beginning in December 1978, he had killed 12 or 13 men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. Dennis also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had either escaped or on one occasion had been at the brink of death but had been revived and allowed to leave in his residence. A further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on February 10th 
revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom, and a skull, a section of torso, and various bones in the tea chest. The same day, Dennis accompanied police to Melrose Avenue, where he indicated the three locations in the rear garden where he had burned the remains of his victims. Catran con contacted the Daily Mirror on February 10th, informing the newspaper of the ongoing search for human remains at Cranley Gardens, leading the newspaper to break the story and spark intense national media interest. By February 11th, reporters from the Mirror had obtained photographs from Dennis's mother in Aberdeenshire, which appeared on their front page the following day. Under English law, the police had 48 hours in which to charge Dennis or release him. Assembling the remains of the victims killed at Cranley Gardens on the floor of Hornsey Mortuary, Professor Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body matched those on police files of Sinclair. At 5.40 p.m. on February 11th, Dennis was charged with Sinclair's murder in a statement revealing this was released to the press. Formal questioning of Dennis began the same evening, with Dennis agreeing to be represented by a solicitor. Police interviewed Dennis on 16 separate occasions over the following days, in their interviews which totaled over 30 hours. Dennis was adamant that he was uncertain as to why he had killed, simply saying, I'm hoping you will tell me that. When asked his motive for the murders, he was adamant that, that the decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. Most victims had died by strangulation. On several occasions, he had drowned the victims once they had been strangled into unconsciousness. Once the victim had been killed, he typically bathed the victim's body, shaved any hair from the torso to conform it to his physical ideal, then applied makeup to any obvious blemishes upon the skin. The body was usually dressed in socks and underpants before Dennis draped the victim around him as he talked to the corpse. With most victims, Dennis masturbated as he stood alongside or knelt above the body, and he confessed to having occasionally engaged in intercural sex with his victims' bodies, but repeatedly st stressed to investigators he had never actually penetrated his victims, explaining that his victims were, quote, too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. All of the victims' personal possessions were destroyed following the ritual of bathing their bodies in an effort to obliterate their identity prior to their murder, and they're now becoming what Dennis described as a prop in his fantasies. In several instances, he talked to his victim's body as it remained seated in a chair or prone on his bed. He recalled being emotional as he marveled at the beauty of their bodies. With reverence to one victim, Kenneth Ockadin, Dennis noted that Kenneth's body and skin were very beautiful, adding the sight almost brought me to tears. Another unidentified victim had been so emaciated that he had simply been discarded under the floorboards. The bodies of the victims killed at his previous address were kept for as long as decomposition would allow. Upon noting any major signs of decomposition in a body, Dennis stowed it beneath his floorboards. 
if a body did not display any signs of decomposition. He occasionally, alternately stowed it beneath the floorboards and retrieved it before again masturbating as he stood over or lay alongside the body. Makeup was again applied to, quote, enhance its appearance and to obscure blemishes. When questioned as to why the heads found at Cranley Gardens had been subjected to moist heat, Dennis stated that he had frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a large cooking pot on his stove so that the internal contents evaporated, thus removing the need to dispose of the brain and flesh. The torsos and limbs of the three victims killed at this address were dissected within about one week of their murder before being wrapped in plastic bags and stowed in three, the three locations that he had indicated to the police. The internal organs and smaller bones he flushed down the toilet. This practice, which had led to his arrest, had been the only method he could consider to dispose of the internal organs and soft tissue, as unlike at Melrose Avenue, he had no exclusive use of the garden of the property. At Melrose Avenue, Dennis typically retained the victims' bodies for a much longer period before disposing of the remains. He kept three or four bodies stowed beneath the floorboards before he dissected the remains, which he would wrap inside plastic bags and either return under the floorboards or, in two instances, place inside suitcases, which had been left at the property by a previous tenant. The remains stowed inside the suitcases, those of Ockenden and Duffy, were placed inside a shed in the rear garden and were disposed of upon the second bonfire Dennis had constructed at Melrose Avenue. Other dissected remains, minus the internal organs, were returned beneath the floorboards or placed upon a bonfire he had constructed in the garden. Dennis confirmed that on four occasions he had removed the accumulated bodies from beneath his floorboards and dissected the remains, and on three of these occasions he had then disposed of the accumulated remains upon an assembled bonfire. On more than one occasion he had removed the internal organs from the victims' bodies and placed them in bags, which he then typically dumped behind a fence to be eaten by wildlife. All of the bodies of the victims killed at Melrose Avenue were dismembered after several weeks or months of internment beneath the floor. Dennis recalled that the putrefaction of these victims' bodies made this task exceedingly vile. He recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and having to grab handfuls of salt with which to brush aside maggots from the remains. Often he vomited as he dissected the bodies before wrapping the dismembered limbs inside plastic bags and carrying the remains to the bonfires. Nonetheless, immediately prior to his dissected, dissecting the victim's bodies, Dennis masturbated as he knelt or sat alongside the corpse. This, he stated, was his symbolic gesture of saying goodbye to his victims. When questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, Dennis replied, I wished I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. He also emphasized that he took no pleasure from the act of killing, but, quote, worshipped the art in the act of death. 
On February 11, 1983, Dennis was officially charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair. He was transferred to HMP Brixton to be held on remand until his trial. According to Dennis, upon being transferred to Brixton Prison to await trial, his mood was one of resignation and relief, with his belief being that he would be viewed in accordance with law as innocent until proven guilty. He objected to wearing a prison uniform while on remand, and protested at having to wear a prison uniform in what he interpreted to be breaches of prison rules. Dennis threatened to protest against his remand conditions by refusing to wear any clothes. As a result of this threat, he was not allowed to leave his cell. On August 1st, he threw the contents of his chamber pot out of his cell, hitting several prison officers. This incident resulted in Dennis being found guilty on August 9th of assaulting prison officers and subsequently spending 56 days in solitary confinement. On May 26, Dennis was committed to stand trial at the Old Bailey on five counts of murder and two of attempted murder. A sixth murder charge was later added. Throughout this committal hearing, he was represented by a solicitor named Ronald Moss, whom he had previously dismissed as his legal representative on April 21st, before Moss was reappointed to that role after Dennis had complained to magistrates he had been afforded no facilities with which he could mount his own defense. Moss was to remain Dennis's legal representative until July 1983, when Dennis, again expressing his intention to defend himself, discharged him until August 5th, when Dennis once again reappointed Moss. Initially, Dennis intended to plead guilty to each charge of murder at his upcoming trial. With Dennis's full consent, Moss had fully prepared his defense. Five weeks before his trial, Dennis again dismissed Moss and opted instead to be represented by Ralph Hams, upon whose advice Dennis agreed to plead not guilty by, dis by diminished responsibility. Dennis was brought to trial on October 24, 1983, charged with six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. He was tried at the Old Bailey before Mr. Justice Croom Johnson and pleaded not guilty on all charges. The primary dispute between the prosecuting and defense counsel was not whether Dennis had killed the victims, but his state of mind before and during the killings. The prosecuting counsel, Alan Green, argued that Dennis was sane in full control of his actions and had killed with premeditation. The defense counsel, Ivan Lawrence, argued that Dennis suffered from di diminished responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming the intention to commit murder and should therefore be convicted only of manslaughter. The prosecution counsel opened the case for the Crown by describing the events of February 1983 leading to the identification of human remains in the drains at Cranley Gardens and Dennis's subsequent arrest, the discovery of three dismembered bodies in his property, his detailed confession, his leading investigators to the charred bone fragments of 12 further victims killed at Melrose Avenue, and the efforts he had taken to conceal his crimes. 
and a tactful reference to the primary dispute between opposing counsel at the trial, Green closed his opening speech with an answer Dennis had given to police in response to a question as to whether he needed to kill. At a precise moment of the act of murder, I believe I am right in doing the act. To counteract this argument, Green added, the Crown says that even if there was mental abnormality, that was not sufficient to diminish substantially his responsibility for these killings. The first witness to testify for the prosecution was Douglas Stewart, who testified that in November 1980, he had fallen asleep in a chair in Dennis's flat, only to wake to find his ankles bound to a chair and Dennis strangling him with a tie as he pressed his knee to his chest. Successfully overpowering Nielsen, Stewart testified that Dennis had then shouted, Take my money! This, the prosecution attested, reflected Dennis's rational, cool presence of mind and that he hoped to be overheard by other tenants. Upon leaving Dennis's residence, Stewart had reported the attack to police, who in turn questioned him, noting conflicting details in the accounts given by both men, police had dismissed the incident as a lover's quarrel. Upon cross-examination, the defense counsel sought to undermine Stewart's credibility, pointing to minor inconsistencies in the testimony. The fact that he had consumed much alcohol on the night in question and suggesting his memory had been selectively magnified as he had previously sold his story to the press. On October 25th, the court heard testimony from two further men who had survived attempts by Dennis to strangle them. The first of these, Paul Nobbs, provided testimony which the prosecution asserted was evidence of Dennis's self-control and ability to refrain from homicidal impulses. A university student, Nobbs testified that he accompanied Dennis to Cranley Gardens for alcohol and sex and woke in the early hours of the morning with a terrible headache. Upon washing his face in Dennis's bathroom, as Nobbs noted his eyes were bloodshot and his face completely red, Dennis had exclaimed, God, you look bloody awful. Dennis advised the youth to see a doctor. Nobbs had not reported the attack to the police for fear of his sexuality being discovered. Contrary to the prosecution claims, the defense counsel asserted that Nobbs' testimony reflected Dennis's rational self-being unable to control his impulses. The fact Dennis had selected a university student as a potential victim was at odds with the prosecution's claim that Dennis intentionally selected rootless males whose disappearance was unlikely to be noted. Immediately after the testimony of Nobbs had concluded, Carl Stoder took the stand to recount how, in May of 1982, Dennis had attempted to strangle and drown him before bringing him, quote, back to life. Stoder's voice frequently quivered with emotion as he recounted how Dennis had repeatedly attempted to drown him in his bathtub as he pleaded in vain for his life to be spared and how he later awoke to find Dennis's mongrel dog licking his face on several occasions. The judge had to allow Stoder time to regain his composure. DCIJ then recounted the circumstances of Dennis's arrest and his calm, matter-of-fact confessions, 
before reading to the court several statements volunteered by Dennis following his arrest. In one of these statements, Dennis had said, quote, I have no tears for my victims. I have no tears for myself, nor those bereaved by my actions. Jay admitted it was unusual for anyone accused of such horrific crimes to be so forthcoming in providing information, and conceded upon questioning by defense counsel that Dennis not only provided most of the evidence against himself, but also encouraged the discovery of evidence which could contradict his own version of events. Following Jay's testimony, D.S. Chambers recited Dennis's formal confession to the court. This testimony included graphic description of the ritualistic and sexual acts Dennis performed with his victims' bodies, his various methods of storage of bodies and body parts, dismemberment and disposal, and the problems decomposition, particularly regarding colonies of maggots, afforded him. Several jurors were visibly shaken throughout this, this testimony. Others looked at Dennis with incredulous expressions on their faces as Dennis listened to the testimony with apparent indifference. This testimony lasted until the following morning when the prosecution included several exhibits into evidence. This included the cooking pot in which Dennis had boiled the heads of three victims killed at Cranley Gardens, the cutting board he had used to dissect John Howlett and several rusted catering knives, which had formerly belonged to victim Martin Duffy. <clears throat> Two psychiatrists testified on behalf of the defense. The first of these, James McKeith, began his testimony on October 26. McKeith testified as to how, through a lack of emotional development, Dennis experienced difficulty expressing any emotion other than anger and his tendency to treat other human beings as components of his fantasies. The psychiatrist also described Dennis's association between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal, stating that Dennis possessed narcissistic traits, an impaired sense of identity, and was able to depersonalize other people. He stated his conclusions that Dennis displayed many signs of maladaptive behavior the combination of which, in one man, was lethal. These factors could be attributed to an unspecified personality disorder from which McKeith believed Dennis suffered. In response to prosecution contention that in attributing an unspecified disorder to Dennis, McKeith was undecided in his conclusions. McKeith contended that in his unspecified personality disorder, was severe enough to substantially reduce Dennis's responsibility. The second psychiatrist to testify for the defense, Patrick Galloway, diagnosed Dennis with a, quote, borderline false self as if pseudo-normal narcissistic personality disorder, with occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances that Dennis managed most of the time to keep at bay. Galway stated that in episodic breakdowns, Dennis became predominantly schizoid, acting in an impulsive, violent, and sudden manner. Galway further added that someone suffering from these episodic breakdowns is most likely to disintegrate under circumstances of social isolation. In effect, Dennis was not guilty of malice aforethought.
Upon cross-examination, Green largely focused upon the degree of awareness shown by Dennis in his ability to make decisions. Galway conceded that Dennis was intellectually aware of his actions, but stressed that, due to his personality disorder, did not appreciate the criminal nature of what he had done. On October 31st, the prosecution called Paul Bowden to testify in rebuttal of the psychiatrist who had testified for the defense. Prior to Dennis's trial, Bowden had interviewed the defendant on 16 separate occasions in interviews totaling over 14 hours. Over two days, Bowden testified that although he found Dennis to be abnormal in a colloquial sense, he had concluded Dennis to be a manipulative person who had been capable of forming relationships, but had forced himself to objectify people. Refuting the testimony of McKeith and Galway, Bowden further testified he had found no evidence of maladaptive, maladaptive behavior and that Dennis suffered from no disorder of the mind. Following the closing arguments of both prosecution and defense, the jury retired to consider their verdict on November 3, 1983. The following day, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder and one of attempted murder with a unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder of Nobbs, Croom Johnson, sentenced Nielsen to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years imprisonment. Following his conviction, Dennis was transferred to HMP Wormwood Scrubs to begin his sentence. As a Category A prisoner, he was assigned his own cell and could mix freely with other inmates. Dennis did not lodge an appeal, accepting that the Crown's case, that he had had the capacity to control his actions and that he had killed with premeditation, was essentially correct. He further elaborated on the day of his conviction that he took an enormous thrill from the, quote, social seduction, the getting the friend back, the decision to kill, the body and its disposal. Dennis also claimed drunkenness was the sole reason at least two of his attempted murders were unsuccessful. In December 1983, Dennis was cut on the face and chest with a razor blade by an inmate named Albert Moffat, resulting in injuries requiring 89 stitches. Afterward, he was briefly transferred to HMP Parkhurst before being transferred to Wakefield, where he remained until 1990. In 1991, Dennis was transferred to a vulnerable prison unit at HMP Full Sutton upon concerns for his safety. He remained there until 1993 when he was transferred to Whitmore, again as a Category A prisoner and with increased segregation from other inmates. The minimum term of 25 years imprisonment to which Dennis was sentenced in 1983 was replaced by a whole life tariff by Home Secretary Michael Howard in December 1994. This ruling ensured Dennis would never be released from prison, a punishment that he accepted. In 2003, Dennis was again transferred to HMP Full Sutton where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. In the prison workshop, 
He translated books into Braille. He spent much of his free time reading and writing, and was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. He also exchanged letters with numerous people who sought his correspondence. Dennis remained at HMP Full Sutton until his death on May 12, 2018. On May 10, 2018, Dennis was taken from HMP Full Sutton to York Hospital after complaining of several stomach pains. He was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which was repaired, although he subsequently suffered a blood clot as a complication of the surgery. Dennis died on May 12th. A subsequent post-mortem examination revealed that the immediate cause of Dennis's death was pulmonary embolism and retroperitoneal hemorrhage. Dennis's body was cremated in June 2018. There was a service held with only five mourners present including three prison officers and the individual with whom Dennis had corresponded while in prison. No family members were present at the service. In line with the Ministry of Justice policy, HMP Full Sutton paid $3,223 toward the cost of Dennis's funeral. His ashes were later handed to his family. Just as I said, that was that was a wild story. I, I usually don't have, or I usually have some thoughts about a big story like this, but all I can really say is good riddance. Killing all of those innocent people and trying to play crazy afterwards. But anyways, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the story as crazy as it was. If you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. And a little bit of news I should have mentioned at the beginning. Uh, Next week's two-year anniversary episode, I was really wanting it to be about you guys the listeners but unfortunately I didn't receive any stories so I hope I can come up with something good for you guys but if you uh, if you do enjoy the show please consider helping to support us by joining on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier once again thank you everyone for listening And make sure to keep your doors and windows locked and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.